You may be seated. It was in 1985 that a group of 200 adults gathered around a city pool in New Orleans. Included in those 200 adults were 100 lifeguards. They were gathering for a celebration, for it was the first summer in recent memory that not a single soul had drowned in a city pool in New Orleans. And as the night went on, eventually people began to scatter and to leave the pool, and the four lifeguards that were on duty began clearing out the pool, and they noticed that there was an individual in the deep end, fully clothed, lying face down. Surrounded by a hundred different lifeguards celebrating their success, a 31-year-old man named Jerome Moody had drowned in the pool. And if you've walked through Luke's gospel with us, perhaps you've seen that Jesus has experienced in many ways almost unbroken success in his ministry. The countryside was coming out to hear his teaching and preaching. Individuals full of disease were coming for his healing. Individuals oppressed by demons were coming for his exercising power. But we've not yet ever seen Jesus throw a celebration party, have we? For the number of demons that he's exercised, diseases that he's healed, or the number of lives that he's raised from the dead. Uh, What we have seen over and over is he is urgently and intentionally preaching the gospel wherever he can because he knows the plight of souls is serious. He is preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, aiming to rescue people from their perishing state, aiming to save those who are spiritually drowning. And for the first time, we see him this morning in our text commission people who are not part of the inside chosen 12 disciples to go participate in his mission of proclaiming the good news to sinners. And so as we walk through this text, I hope it will be something that does indeed encourage us in our missionary endeavors for Jesus Christ as individuals, but also as a local church body. And so what I hope we can highlight as we walk through our 24 verses is this wonderful truth that we will see quite clearly, that salvation in Christ is our great testimony and treasure, that every true disciple in Christ has indeed the richest testimony, the story and witness of salvation found in a Savior named Jesus Christ, but also every child of God has the richest treasure, which is that very salvation that he alone can bring. So kids, as we walk through this text, I want you to give particular attention to what Jesus says about the delight of knowing him. The deep-seated, heart-consuming joy that we ought to have just because we know him. But even for us as a church, we want to once again see Jesus' unwavering, unrelenting resolve to reach people who don't know him. Because salvation in Christ is our great mission, it's our great marvel, it's our pleasure, it's our purpose, and we want to be renewed once again to see the joy of that testimony and treasure this morning. So you might be in here today, and you're not a Christian Maybe you have Christian friends. Maybe you've attended churches long enough to know that Christian churches and Christians tend to make a big deal about salvation. This great news that sinners can be saved from the penalty of their sin. And I hope this morning that you will see just how wonderful it is 
to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So if you just look down at the 24 verses that are before us, what you would see is that there are two simple movements in our text. The first 16 verses finds this short-term mission trip sent out. Jesus commissioning them, empowering them, instructing them. And then in verse 17 through 24, that mission trip team returns and reports on their success to Jesus. So that's kind of how the text moves together. But I want to walk through it under four simple exhortations. Because there are unique elements to this mission team being commissioned by Christ that aren't true for us, but there actually is a lot in the passage that does indeed inform our missionary work for Jesus Christ. And so I want to just walk through our 24 verses under four exhortations, the first of which is prepare prayerfully. Uh, Missionaries for Christ, prepare prayerfully. If you weren't with us last week, you can just glance back up in the text or back in the text to chapter 9, verse 51. Uh, What we saw there is something of a turning point in Jesus' ministry as he set his face to go to Jerusalem. After two plus years of ministering in and around this area of Galilee, he's finally going to make the 80-mile journey south to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross at Calvary where he is eventually going to give himself as the ransom and atoning sacrifice for sinners. And the first order of business, if you were with us last week, was him facing rejection in Samaria. And the second order of business is now him commissioning another mission team. Look again at verse 1. Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And you might have a little footnote in your Bible on that number 72, because there's great scholarly discussion and debate as to whether it should be 72 or 70, because there's a lot of manuscripts of Luke's Gospel that say one or the other. And the reason it's significant is because the number 70 is quite significant in Old Testament redemptive history. It can recall a time in the book of Numbers where Moses commissioned 70 elders to go minister in the Spirit's power. And so maybe that's something of an echo we get in Luke chapter 10. But what I think is more likely is that what you would find if you flipped all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 10 is a table of nations. And you know how many nations are listed? 70. And so what Jesus seems to be doing is commissioning a new group of missionaries that symbolize his intent to reach the entire world. Because he, of course, is going to Jerusalem to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners, but that is going to be good news, a gospel that goes forth to the nations. And so this number of individuals now he is commissioning is somewhat representative of his desire to bring every tribe, tongue, and nation unto faith in his name. I had a friend of mine who had a ministry to day laborers who would gather together looking for work in downtown Frisco. And what he would often do is bring them hot coffee or, or breakfast tacos, and uh, he was quite fluent in a couple different languages, and would just try to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you've ever seen this corner in downtown Frisco, you know that no matter the conditions, rain or shine, snow or heat, there are always people gathering together ready to labor. But what you see here is he's sending out these people two by two to make sure that there are witnesses trying to reach the masses with the truth of who he is. There is something of a problem. Look at verse 2. He says, The harvest is plentiful. 
but the laborers are few. We know from the fullness of Luke's gospel that the harvest he's talking about here is the harvest of souls. So he's saying the harvest is ripe, but where are the people to do the reaping? The harvest is full and ready for souls to be brought into the kingdom, but who's going to go bring them in? And I suppose if you presented that problem or that issue to your typical Presbyterian church, a few different things would suddenly be proposed as solutions to the problem. One would be to raise a committee who would, of course, bring new initiatives to the church, strategic initiatives to involve them in outreach, or maybe it's another team to increase lay education on the number of unreached people groups in the world and the indeed plightful reality of people apart from Christ. Or maybe even we as a denomination in the PCA would start a new board or a new agency who would then have the responsibility to gather Christians together to send them out into the nations. And of course all those things are not wrong in and of themselves. But they are wrong if it takes the place of what Jesus says we must do about the problem. Do you see how verse 2 continues? Therefore, what are we to do? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you ever wonder, especially here in the 21st century West, if so much of our holy, righteous desires for the mission of the church are not becoming true in our life together for the simple reason that we are failing in our devotion to prayer? Could it be that we're struggling for success in evangelism because we struggle so much in our life of prayer? Could it be that our difficulty in sending out church planters and missionaries to the harvest field is simply a consequence of our difficulty in being devoted to prayer? The, the idea here is Christ is the Lord of the harvest. He's the sovereign keeper of the field. And so he cares about that field more than we do. Why wouldn't you pray to him? He is saying himself to send out laborers into his harvest. And this word here in the Greek, send out, it's a full of force, ekbalo. It kind of carries the idea more than of sending out, of expelling of ejecting, of, of throwing. It's something of the ideas just as like a pilot would pull the ejection lever under his seat and he would be catapulted out of the cockpit. So it might be that you sit in here this morning and Jesus is meaning to pull that ejection lever from under the comfort and security of your life and expel you, eject you out into the nations to preach the gospel to someone who's never heard it before. Or perhaps much more common among us, I would imagine, is he still means to pull that ejection lever, but he's going to send you out, expel you out to just the other side of your front door, to knock on the neighbor's house across the street that you haven't yet gotten to know and share the love of Christ with them. Missionaries for Christ prepare prayerfully. And secondly, they go urgently. Look what we're told in verse 3. Go your way, Jesus says. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's not the most exciting news, is it, if you're being commissioned as a missionary for Christ? You are a gentle, innocent lamb going out to bloodthirsty wolves. But perhaps it's because that in our sin we are wolf-like towards Christ. 
And he means for us to be like lambs within his kingdom. You know, students, you don't need to know church history very well to know that whenever the gospel has advanced in any part of the world, this kind of opposition, this kind of hostility, this kind of rejection has normally been common for those missionaries. So often for the first ones jumping on any type of mission trip into a unique mission field, it's not been uncommon for their blood to stain the soil in which they're trying to plant seeds of the gospel. The need is great, Jesus is saying, so you must go urgently, because just scan your eyes through verses four through eight. Very similar to instructions he gave the disciples in their mission trip back in chapter nine. You see the urgent, uh, urgency of the mission in that he says, take no money, Take no extra clothes. Uh, You'll see even in verse 4, greet no one on the road because ancient Eastern greetings tended to be quite time-consuming. Go into a city, proclaim peace upon a house, stay in that house, eat what they have given you, and stay there for as long as you can. And then, of course, you eventually move on to another place. The news is urgent, and so the mission is urgent, Jesus says. Now, the question that he's going to begin to answer, though, is what happens, because it often happens, doesn't it, when they reject the news that you are bringing? What happens when the city you're trying to reach doesn't want any part of this kingdom that you are sent to proclaim? For look at verse 9. Jesus says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So you've got to Pray prayerfully, go urgently, and then what we see in the next few verses is that we have to preach courageously, because notice what he says in verse 10 and 11. In the face of this rejection, what are these missionaries to say? They're to say unto the people that are rejecting the good news, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It's the same thing the disciples were supposed to do, Jesus told them to do when they went on their trip back in chapter 9. It's the same the apostles do throughout the book of Acts. It's the symbolic act of judgment, shaking off dust from your feet. Shake it off in order that you will soon trample it down. And Jesus is saying that action is symbolic of what will happen to anyone who rejects Jesus Christ. That there is a time coming, the day of judgment, the Old Testament particularly uses this imagery of shaking the nation. When God will shake those who have received him or who have rejected him. And those who have rejected him, he will trample on in his righteous judgment. It's a courageous message they're meant to preach. And notice the caveat he gives at the end of verse 11. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Rejection of the kingdom does not stop its advance. Do you see that? That kingdom is present among those people. It's just now present in its judgment, not in its peace, and not in its blessing. And in order to amplify that even further, look what Jesus says in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now students, you have to pause for a second here on verse 12 and think about the radical claim that Jesus just made. Because kids, do you know of a story in the Old Testament that talks about a city named Sodom? And do you know what happened to it? You can go open up your Bible later on today and turn to Genesis chapter 19 and you'd find it. Because of their grossly unrepentant sin, what does God do? He consumes the entire city with sulfur and fire falling forth from heaven. And what has Jesus just said? Sodom got it easy. 
it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So serious is the rejection of Jesus Christ. And again, to once, once more pound at home in the hearers, look at verse 13 through 15. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. So you see, twice in those verses, Jesus talks about these towns, Tyre and Sidon. They were Old Testament cities that were well known for their sin, for their idolatry and rebellion. So much so by this time in the first century, to speak of Tyre and Sidon was to basically speak in shorthand about cities who were beyond the hope of salvation. Okay, Jesus had just taken those two cities and compared them to three, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, cities in which he has been ministering, doing his marvelous works, his miracles, exorcisms, healings, powerful preaching, dominating those countrysides, and yet they haven't repented of their sin. And so Jesus once again says, for those cities, Tyre and Sidon will have it more bearable in their day of judgment than you. And I hope you know it's true that throughout history, what can happen in God's work in the world is certain countries, certain cities, and even certain churches are uniquely privileged with demonstrations and declarations of who Christ is and what he came to do. And yet those very countries, cities, and even churches, in their unbelief and unrepentance, reject Jesus Christ. And Jesus is warning us today of the danger of such unbelief, inviting unto ourselves, inviting unto our cities, increased judgment, more so than even Tyre, in Sidon. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you think all of this judgment talk from Jesus is quite harsh. It's quite unfair. Well, he wants to answer your objection in verse 16. Notice what he says next. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Do you see the logic? Jesus says to reject any faithful missionary or preacher of Jesus Christ is nothing less than the equivalent of a spiritual slap in the face of the King of Kings and the Father who sent him. Would not any king be right to judge such an action? You have to preach the gospel courageously because the gospel is the good news of a rescue from judgment. So we prepare prayerfully, go urgently, Preach courageously and now respond humbly. If you've ever been on a mission trip before, I'm sure at some point in the trip, maybe it's even a daily thing, you get together with your team and you have some sort of a debrief session. You talk about what you experienced during the day. You talk about how maybe the Lord was opening new truths of his character unto you. And so you'll see the debrief has now come. The 72 have returned in verse 17. And look what they say to Jesus. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus seems to join in the excitement. Notice in verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
And verse 18, you can take a couple of different ways. Some people think it's just this kind of future vision of Satan's end-time fall that's going to come when Jesus once again returns and he restores all things and he makes all things new, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth, finally ushering out Satan and casting him forever into the lake of fire. Maybe it's that that he's seen in a future sense. I think it's more likely what he is saying is, as a result of their faithful gospel ministry, healing the sick, preaching the good news of the kingdom, that these missionaries are participating in his work of tearing down Satan's kingdom of darkness. For just as, like the allied armies landed at D-Day so long ago, and then they usher in a victory over the Nazi army, and an American general can say, we defeated Hitler today, yet Hitler wasn't fully and finally vanquished. So is Jesus saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And they're rejoicing in this, aren't they? And they, Jesus even gives further good news. Notice verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And kids, I wonder if that excites you, that Jesus might have given people power to stomp on scorpions and snakes. Maybe it's not something that gets you terribly excited. But I don't think we're meant to take it literally Serpents, snakes were common ancient symbols for evil, for Satan and his demons. That just as Christ has authority over Satan and his legions, so do his faithful servants and faithful preachers. Yet he says something that we need to pause on in verse 20. We don't want to treat verse 20 like a billboard on the highway, just rushing by it, remembering only for a few seconds what we just saw. Because Jesus means to participate in their joy, verses 17, 18, and 19. He does also mean to perfect their joy. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There is a common tendency within Christians to rejoice most in their service for Christ more than their status in Christ. To rejoice more in what we are doing, fervently and faithfully for Jesus Christ, more so than what he has done for us. That by his grace and mercy, our names are written in heaven. It was sometime in late 1980 that a man named Ian Murray visited a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Ian Murray was Lloyd-Jones' biographer. They were former colleagues and very close friends. And by this point in his life, Martin Lloyd-Jones was near his death. He could only get out of bed one or two hours a day just to sit up and communicate with his family. And Ian Murray visited him, and he asked him, how are you coping with your confinement? Because Lloyd-Jones, after all, was one of the most famous preachers, English-speaking preachers in the entire 20th century. Worldwide ministry, now confined to a bed, not even able to get up for the vast majority of the day. How are you coping with this confinement? And Lloyd-Jones proceeded to quote a text, which was Luke chapter 10, verse 20. And then he said, Ian, I am perfectly content. There is a unique joy in knowing that your name has been written in heaven, sealed with the blood of the Lamb, so much greater than any sort of success you could experience even in this world. And I'll be honest with you, I had a unique 
conviction point on this, and particularly those of you who might be church leaders in here know of the temptation of which I speak in pastoral circles. It tends to be a conversation that you have with your brother ministers, and before you know what you are doing, you're quickly talking about everything you are doing for the kingdom, comparing yourself to others' more successful ministry. And Jesus is saying, what is the most joyful thing in the world is the treasure of having your name written down because of what I have done for you. Our deepest joys reveal our greatest desires, don't they, for worldly fame or everlasting righteousness at the Father's right hand. So Jesus is participating in their joy. Look again at verse 21. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This word rejoiced in the Greek, it's much more forceful too. It talks about like positive exultation. If you ever wanted a text where we're told that Jesus is like thrilling, enraptured with joy, this is it. So kids, what thrills Jesus? Look at how he continues in verse 21 through 22. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the Son, no one who knows who the Son is, is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So what is Jesus rejoicing in? The sovereign grace of the Father. He's saying that knowing your salvation, having your sins forgiven, is not something that you have earned. It's not some sort of knowledge that God bestows upon those who are uniquely intellectually able to conceive of the majesty and power found in the gospel. God has given it to little children who don't deserve it. And Christ has done it too, is what verse 22 tells us, because he says, no one knows the Father except me and whom I choose to reveal the Father to and so what should missionaries for Christ do as they go about prepare, preparing prayerfully, going urgently, preaching courageously? They should respond humbly to the gracious initiative of God in their life and the ongoing sovereign kindness of Christ in saving sinners. Salvation in Christ is our great testimony, but it's also our greatest treasure. So as we begin to conclude our time, I want to just bring out two simple implications from this passage. Because we could pull out a lot more, but two simple ones that I think kind of balance out the two divisions that we find within the text. Two simple exhortations that we need to see as a church related to what it means to be faithful missionaries for Christ. Number one, true gospel ministry does not shy away from the reality of judgment. True gospel ministry does not shy away from the reality of judgment. You might have heard of the name before of Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish theologian and philosopher, and he was once asked the question, you know, Dr. Kierkegaard, what happens to preachers who warn sinners of their sin? He responded with a parable. He said, consider the opening night of a great and celebrated comedic play fire breaks out backstage and a clown sees it. The clown bursts out from behind the curtain with motions to warn people to flee. 
heat and fire are coming. Yet they think it's an act. So they begin to participate in what he's doing. And he only increases his gestures, increases his urgency, moving to the center of the stage, while all the while they thought it was simply a happy joke. That's what happens in the modern world to preachers who warn about the judgment that God brings upon sin. But we see, don't we, from our text that judgment is real. It is severe, it is serious, it is promised. And we want to be people that do not shrink back from declaring the reality of God's judgment upon sin because as I've even said before, to do so would be to minimize the unending, abounding love of Jesus Christ. Because what did he do? Set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross at Calvary. If you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, See the fullness of the Savior's love at the cross because our text and the Bible is telling you that to remain in unbelief and sin is to deserve this kind of judgment. To reject the preaching of Christ and the proclamation of the kingdom that you're even here this morning is to earn and deserve this kind of judgment. But what did the Son do? He took it on the cross for His people. A sulfur-like, fiery storm of God's wrath that you deserve, he satisfied. He absorbed in the place of his people that they might receive peace, that they might receive righteousness, that their sins might be forgiven, that everlasting joy at the Father's right hand would be your portion, not unending judgment and wrath. We dare not shrink back from declaring the reality of judgment, because to do so would be to shrink back from the fullness of Christ's grace shown at the cross. So true gospel ministry, faithful gospel churches don't shy away from the reality of judgment, but secondly, faithful gospel churches thrive on the joy of salvation. Do you see it even in Christ's life? It's like speaking about the joy of salvation, he suddenly moved within his spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be thrilled with the Father's sovereign grace. He says, don't focus on what you are doing for the kingdom. Don't focus even on your immense successes for the kingdom. But content yourself to rest on the good news that your names are written in heaven, that you might thrive on joy. So it's even a question of examination for us as a church, isn't it? Is this kind of forward motion and joy compelling us in our missionary movements for Jesus Christ because it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross? So too it is for God's people, for the joy set before them to endure the shame, suffering, rejection in the world, to preach, to proclaim the good news that the kingdom has come, that the king is here, that he is ruling and reigning. A savior for sinners has arrived and is offered unto you. And that salvation is the greatest testimony we have to offer to the world. And it's also the greatest treasure that we have to enjoy. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are God who is full of mercy, sovereign kindness and grace towards us. Lord, I'm sure that we know how false Far short we fall in our prayers, in our going, in our speaking of Christ, and even our cultivation of humility. 
But help us, we pray, to see once again the fullness of the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we have been welcomed into his kingdom, that we are chosen in him, that we are called and commissioned, filled by the Spirit to indeed be faithful missionaries where you have placed us. So help us, we pray, to grow in our testimony and to grow in our treasuring of Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.